God and Other Delicacies has a weekly newsletter. If you'd like to subscribe, email me at godsdelicateshow at gmail.com and I'll put you on the list. Welcome to God and Other Delicacies. I'm Nicholas D'Augusto. Thank you all so much for being here. Today, I have the privilege of welcoming Charlie Bressler to the show. Charlie's career has taken a few interesting turns. He began as a professor after earning his PhD in social and clinical psychology from Clark University. From there, he was recruited to the clothing store, The Men's Warehouse, where for many years he was the company president. He eventually stepped down from the position in order to dedicate his life to philanthropy, and in 2013, he became the volunteer, read, unpaid, executive director of The Life You Can Save, a nonprofit inspired by the writings of social philosopher Peter Singer, dedicated to reducing extreme poverty and its effects suffered by over 700 million people globally. Now, I met Charlie around that time when I tweeted about The Life You Can Save after listening to Peter talk on NPR, and he reached out to me. I have since become an active member in the charity. And sometimes Charlie even buys me dinner with all the money he made from the men's warehouse. It's been a big win-win for me. <laughs> Welcome to the show, Charlie. Thank you, Nicholas. Hey, thanks for having. Thanks for being here, man. By the way, I always call you Nick, but I think you prefer Nicholas. You know, I actually, frankly, I prefer Nick, but I, I have this thing, and now I'm, I'm going to blow it on the air here. I think, but I, when people call me Nicholas, I feel more professional. Like I feel like I'm in a professional environment, and when people call me Nick, I feel like. Is that a family member? Is that somebody I know? Who's which? Which face am I putting on at that exact moment? If someone says Nicholas, I know they don't know me super well. So now everyone knows if they know me, if they want, if they see me, they now know how to get me. So that's that's my that's my little relationship right. with Nick and Nicholas. So you call me Nick. I will call you Nick. Yeah. Um, Charlie, you just came. When did you get down here? You came down from we, Seattle. We came down from Seattle for this event we're having tonight uh, for the book launch for the Life You Can Save's 10th anniversary updated version, which we have um, in ebook form with yeah. lots of wonderful links to our website, thelifeyoucansave.org, and also wonderful uh, celebrity readers, including Nicholas D'Augusta. Yours truly. I did it. I did a, a chapter. I have chapter six, I think was my chapter, right? Yeah, but I, and I'm told you were tied with Stephen Fry for the best reader. And that is such a delight. It might be one of my career highlights to hear something like that. To, to, to think that Stephen Fry and I might be one and two, that is amazing. You're lucky you didn't get the chapter that Mark Evan Jackson had, though. It was 51 minutes, and it was all numbers. Oh. And I have to say, <laughs> he did an incredible job. It was brutal. Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I loved it, man. I loved it. Um, I... Uh, I you know, I love talking about, it's a cool charity. Okay, let's, let's talk about extreme poverty, okay? So that's one, so, so one thing that Charlie's talking about is Peter Singer's written a lot of books. He's been writing books since the 60s. Uh, well, he wrote the book about extreme poverty, the article, in 1972. Okay. But he's been writing he's for a quite big, a while. He's about 73 or 74 years old, I think. Yeah, he's a big animal rights activist, he a is huge really, part of his... Yeah, I think he's the founder of the animal rights movement in the United States, in maybe in the world. Yeah, he's extraordinary. And I mean, I remember coming across, not knowing anything about him in like one of my environmental philosophy classes. Like he, he and a number of other people were essays that I read at the time. Um, and then it was kind of interesting later in life when I heard him talking on the, as I referenced at the beginning, I heard him on NPR giving one of these, you know, here's what extreme poverty is and here's what the life you can save is about. And anyway, so 10 years ago, this book comes out and it's an important book and it's something that you latch onto kind of right away or when do you discover it? I read it in 2012 okay. while I was on a family vacation in Hawaii of all places. All right. And uh, in a luxury home, my boss's home, George Zimmer, the founder of the men's warehouse where I was working. Okay. Um, he, he had this estate and I, we were, he was generous enough to let us stay at his estate. Then I read at the, I read practical ethics, which is a serious philosophy book that Peter wrote. And then I read the life you can save. And I was at a point where I really wanted to do something. So the book really grabbed me, even though, as I'm sure we'll talk about it really just recalled old themes in my life, things that I really thought I believed in, but really hadn't done anything about. So it wasn't one of these aha epiphany moments like Martin Luther or something like that. Right, right, right. It, yeah, it was one of these, oh yeah, I better do something about this before I am too much older. 
So that's what happened. That's when had I had you it. already been thinking about. We're kind of skipping past some of these questions, which I'll get into later. But this is a good place to be in this conversation. Were you already thinking about leaving the men's warehouse at that point? So I'd already left the men's warehouse. So I maybe oh, you, should. But he was tell, still letting you use his house. That's yeah, nice. he was. But not anymore. <laughs> you left. <laughs> but you left on good terms. Apparently. Yeah, left on good terms. No, we did not leave on good terms. Left. Stepped down when I was on good terms in 2008. This was oh. now 2012, four years later. I had a sort of significant consulting agreement that I couldn't walk away with because it was too lucrative, like most executives in the United States just paid too much money for too little work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you can edit that out if you want. But I doubt I will. That sounds pretty <laughs> but, juicy um, to me. But in any case, I... And I, I if you want me to edit it out, no, we'll talk I don't. about it. To clarify from your introduction, I didn't step down to do philanthropy. I stepped down to try to work in a to try to help bring about a world where philanthropy wouldn't be necessary. Uh. And I like to make that distinction because if you had the right structural changes, the right social movements, etc., over time, there wouldn't be people living in extreme poverty. So there, and there wouldn't be people who didn't have medical care or care for their mental or psychological problems. So maybe there would be no need for philanthropy. That's, That's a really lovely statement. I actually, I'm not even sure I've heard you say it in that exact should way. Should I say it tonight? I don't know. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't know if you feel it fits. I mean, I'm just saying that it's, it seems, um, I like that. Uh, cause the, the, it gives such a, it gives, I think a surprising mission statement for what you feel like the life you can save is doing. Well, the life you can save is, is a wing of philanthropy, but you're, what you're doing is something, you're trying to get the idea, it's not philanthropy, it's a mindset change. And you're trying to instill that in the listening public, right? Is this, is yeah, this what you're saying? That essentially, but I mean, maybe I should, let me just finish the story. Yeah. Where, so I stepped down in 2008 because I wanted to do something that was consistent with my values. But since my sophomore year in college, I felt like I was committed to trying to help create a world, be one small piece of the people creating a world where there would be much better uh, in income and wealth distribution, where natural resources would not be plundered from the developing world and benefited corporations in the developed world and the people who own the stock in those corporations. So that and racial and, ec and gender equality and all those things that were part of the new left in the 1968 when I became much more conscious of wanting to participate in these things, not to mention the anti-war activity against the war in Southeast Asia, particularly mm. Vietnam. So the, so those were the formative years of my worldview. And in many ways it hasn't changed since then. So that's why I say, I think that my heart has always been in trying to help create a world in which philanthropy is not necessary, where there's economic and social justice. But I despaired of that, like many people in my generation, and led a pretty much completely self-serving life, working to help my family, have this relationship with my wife, Diana, who's sitting in the who's room. Who's in the room right now. Um, and, and really very insular and very selfish, I would say. Um, with a certain amount of guilt, but not that much guilt. Like most people, I managed to s suppress the guilt. But not, but I didn't change what I really thought or my values. And then in 2008, I, I was like, holy moly, you know, I'm getting old. And if I'm ever going to do anything, I really should do it. And I wasn't loving my job as president. I certainly didn't want to be the next CEO, which I was kind of slated to be. Mm. So I told George and the board that I wanted to leave. And it was inconvenient for them because we didn't have a clear successor to George, mm. and that became a huge problem later on down the road. Mm. Um, but they rewarded me with a nice contra contract of um, of consulting, and I continued to do that. So when I read Peter's book in 2012, I was in a position where I could volunteer to help fund a new organization that Peter had just started, or what he calls an incipient organization. And I was also in a position to volunteer to work significantly part-time um, to help develop the organization that had been currently was being run by like a junior at Oxford. So that's amazing. Okay. So that's, that's lovely. Can you, let's do, we're going to get back to that. Not at that detail on that specific thing, but we're going to have to fit that into your life chronology a little bit with some of your other, like some coloring other aspects of your thought regarding God in particular. But, um, 
Talk about what is extreme poverty real quick before I jump back into the show. It's defined as people who live on the equivalent of less than $1.90 U.S. And that means what a, a day. Thank you. And what a day. Uh, God, I'm glad uh, you're here, a, Diana. Yeah, it's, I was well, drinking it's, coffee while I didn't really yeah, like see what since, he did right there. Yeah, since uh, <laughs> high school, she's been doing that. Um, <laughs> so it's fortunately, good to have the right ones around. Yeah, yeah right. Uh, so a dollar ninety per day U.S., which not which doesn't mean a dollar ninety U.S. spent in Gabon or South Africa. It means what a dollar ninety buys in the U.S. So that's the world, um, the World Bank definition of extreme poverty. And that's actually really interesting. I'm not sure I even knew that. It's a dollar ninety. What a not. I mean, I guess I kind of knew that intuitively, but I'd never said it. It's not what a dollar ninety can buy you. There, because you can a dollar ninety can buy you quite a bit right. in some of these areas. Right. Um, totally at a discrepancy to what it would buy you here in the United States. Right. It's what it's try to imagine living with a dollar and ninety cents a day. And that includes like paying for everything. Everything. Like don't forget about all the things that you just have on your credit card that renew, you know, your your or mortgages or rents or uh, insurance or all that stuff, right? You know, like don't forget about any of that stuff. We're not just talking about can you can you can you survive on a dollar ninety just finding food for the day? It's right. every single thing, all the clothes so you're wearing. We think of it as the like, water you're drinking. We think of it as less than most people spend on a bottle of water, and certainly less than most people spend on their latte. Yeah. So that's per day for yeah. everything, and this includes supporting your kids, and of course, so it means right. basically living in a state of not only economic insecurity but food insecurity, health insecurity, complete and total insecurity. Every day. And the sort of like estimate number. Seven. You said it right at right. the beginning of the show. 700 over 700 million. million. I think the current number is 734 million. But, wow. you know, we could, they say that large numbers are kind of like numbing. One number is like a real life. So that 734 rolls off our. Sure, lips, your brain but, can't. You oh, can't. yeah. 734 million people that, don't, that are living in a state of extreme insecurity, plus all the refugees and in the world and. Yeah. All right. Well, this is really good stuff. Uh, I love it. I can talk about it for a long time, but the show's about God. So let's get to that. Um, but first, we start about breakfast. What did you have for breakfast this morning? I had smoked salmon and half a baguette. Ooh, that sounds nice. Yeah. I'm fortunately not living in extreme poverty. <laughs> well, good. You know? Although, uh, yeah, I try to do better about giving money away than I used to, and uh, but definitely was not suffering at breakfast this morning. Did you uh, eat at the hotel or did you go find a nice we little cafe? We went to Pan Quotidien, which oh, yeah, we've yeah, eaten in, in different yeah. places as throughout our travels around the world. It's one of my chains that I like. Oh, good. Yeah. Um, okay, man. So the the big question regarding the show is how and when were you introduced to the idea of God in your life? I was introduced to the concept of God at some point that I don't remember, but I imagine it was around the time that my parents told me I was going to be going to Sunday school, that I started going occasionally, like maybe four or five times a year to temple. My parents were both Jewish. Okay. Um, my grandparents were both Jewish. All my grandparents were from Eastern Europe, various parts of Eastern Europe, um, and they left during pogroms in the probably early part of the uh, 19, of the 20th century. So so, they, so most of your family got out before, you know, the the, the, the most of the horrors began to even be it's sort of In terms of the Holocaust, assessed. none of my family was in the Holocaust, but there were Russian pogroms that were bad, and, and uh, Japan and Russia were in a war in 1905, and Russia got beat by Japan. You can imagine this huge country right. getting swallowed up by this tiny little country. And so I think they went after Jews at that time. But I don't really have a good sense of the genealogy. But rolling forward, probably in the mid-1950s, I'm 70 now, so probably around the time I was six or eight, um, around the time that Don Larson pitched the perfect game in the World Series, <laughs> I was introduced to the concept of God by going to temple four or five times a week during... Uh, the major Jewish holidays. I was also started going to Sunday school after that, and then I went to Hebrew school for a number of years to prepare for my bar mitzvah. So God was in my life kind of during those years, for sure. Were your parents... Do you think your parents... Um, uh, were they a strong... Were they... Did they live... Did they bring God's life into your home in a in a direct way on a daily basis? No, I neither of my parents 
ever spoke about God or any theological matters. They were both um, quiescent in terms of their own social activities, but they were both very much um, concerned about civil rights, which of course was a big issue in the liberal community in the in the 1950s. Even white people, I mean, not to mention, obviously, the black community or black people in the South. Uh, so they were concerned about civil rights, and they were, to some extent, concerned about economic and social justice. So I think that the theological part of my upbringing was practically zilch. Um, it was done more as a sense of obligation to their parents, mm -hmm. uh, particularly my paternal grandfather. Mm. But, the, um, but those values underpinning some of Jewish theology some was part of my daily life i would say uh i when i was at, growing up over my bed i had a bust of franklin roosevelt and it wasn't so much that franklin roosevelt represented god like jesus or or something like that but franklin roosevelt i think epitomized the idea that whether it was fair or not or accurate historically to my mom particularly and my dad epitomized the idea that we would care about having a social safety net something that has sort of fallen out of favor um, in the current government. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, you know, this feels like, this is a little early to take a break, but I, I feel like this is a really, we talked a lot about the show, we talked a lot about Life You Can Save Early, and we're just kind of jumping at this point. I want to take a quick break, and then we're going to get into the meat of your sort of upbringing and find all your embarrassing stories after I'm, the break. Okay, I'm really interested in theology in spite of my lack of preparation. Oh, good. Let's, let's do it. We'll be back with Charlie in a second. All right, everybody, we're back with Charlie Bresler. So, Charlie, when you said... Um, that you were interested in the theology of this, like what what were you thinking? Like what part? What part? Where was your brain starting to go when you said, "Like I'm interested in that"? What was your mind thinking about? Well, I'm interested in different forms of spirituality, including traditional ones. I don't know a lot about religion. I don't even know a lot about Judaism, but I am interested in it from the point of view of listening to other people who are very who consider themselves to be quite religious. Mm -hmm. And I'm interested in it, how people like myself who are more secular-oriented can become more spiritual. And I have a, it's, it's important to me, um, and I don't feel, even at this late stage of my life, or that I have enough of a sense of coping with my own insignificance in the universe, yet still feeling connected to all things living. And I haven't worked that out. I'm hoping to work it out in the next 15 minutes. Ha, um, but you got uh, more time. I've been waiting. I've been waiting. I've been waiting for an awful I've been waiting for an awful long time. But I am interested in these questions. And okay, I ask so, people oh, yeah. about their religious beliefs, kind of the way you might do on the show. I and and I find that people don't like to go too far into thinking about when I ask second and third order questions about, well, what do you mean about heaven? Or what do you mean about hell? What is it like there? How do you decide who goes there and who doesn't? Or, um, well, when you think about God, is God an anthropomorphic being? Is God, is it everywhere? If God's everywhere, then you're sort of a pantheist. And I just ask people those questions, and I feel, like, and I feel like they don't really have second or third order answers that they're, they don't really necessarily want to penetrate because it feels to me like they almost find the questions threatening. So let me ask you, do you feel like, I? by the way, I, I uh, no surprise, I love this too. I mean, this is what the show's about. Um, and I find also that people do want to talk a lot about, or they, they do struggle to talk about this. And it depends which environment you're in, right? I mean, one of the benefits of being in a show and you put a microphone in, somebody is, in front of somebody is that people start to get serious. They start to realize that what they're saying is being recorded. So the thought, it, they, if they're just talking to you as they're walking down the street or you're hanging out having a cup of coffee or a beer or something, it's easy to duck a question at a certain point, you know. But once you realize you're kind of be, being put on the spot, um, it makes people think a little deeper and be honest about how they're feeling about something. And I guess my question to you is, you're talking about it in a way that I understand. You're trying to kind of logic, you're trying to logic out their thoughts. 
but a lot of people have a kind of they spirituality is an impulse emotional reaction. So when you're did you have an emotional connection to God when you were a kid? Did you when when you when you were early on, right? You're you're kind of you sort of open by saying basically that you know, you kind of got an idea of of God from the Jewish like a Torah centric God, a Jewish centric God. I'm sure you were grown up in the states so you were around a lot of Christians, but um uh you know, it doesn't sound like you maybe I'm wrong, but it doesn't sound like the the literature was that impressionable on you or I wasn't exposed to that much of it. I mean, when I was in Sunday school, I just tried to get through it and I kind of spaced out and I don't think that was well taught and I wasn't really into it. Hebrew school, pretty much the same. It was like interfering with playing baseball or basketball or football or whatever it was I wanted to be doing instead of being in Hebrew school. I'm not particularly gifted at languages, so that didn't appeal to me. But I did have this moment around when I was 13 around my bar mitzvah that I remember, and this is literally the only time in my life, when I was in the temple reading my portion of the Torah, which I still um, have some sense of, Hmm. um, I remember feeling connected to what I would have said was God at that moment. Maybe it was only because I was really hoping that God would get me through being in front of all those people reading Hebrew without vowels um, and not forget what I was supposed to do. Right. Um, because I was petrified um, of doing that. And But I did feel at that moment connected to God. And I've had other moments in my life, more than a few, where I felt a sense of connection to living beings and a sense of awe, um, which one might associate with a religious moment. Um, But I have never identified those moments as God. I would have more been willing to talk about them probably, and in retrospect, in the Maslow sense of a peak experience or something like that, or as we said in sports or tennis, which was the one sport I could play well, Mm. um, in the flow. And there's a sense of being in the flow to me that is maybe something that people who feel connected to God feel. And I've had more than a few moments like that in my life, doing lots of different things, different times. When was the first... So, you know, 13 is maybe the first time. And then where does it go from there? So you get through the bar mitzvah, you know, you've completed the things that make you the base level adult in your religion, your parents are not going to pound it into you after that, right? You're not, you're, you're, didn't your even family's... last that day because <laughs> I left the party to go pitch a game with my little league friends who were there at the game. And I got absolutely blasted. I, oh, wow. I had a and you're cur- like, God, screw no. Come on, on my bar mitzvah? <laughs> well, I had a curveball that broke three <laughs> feet right to left, but not an inch down. So once people had been up to bat once, they had figured it out. All it was like putting the ball on a batting tee. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. So, so, so do you, you're not going to temple with your family all that often. Your parents don't go to temple? No, nobody in my family goes to temple except my daughter. And oh, she had d- only, oh, okay. So, and she had been right. to temple, I think, one time in her life before she started going on her own. We didn't even know she was going. All right. Well, that's jumping ahead from where I want to go yeah. right now, but I like that. So, so your parents didn't, they didn't feel, they, they didn't. You weren't going to temple a lot as a family. Once you got through this, stage we didn't of have it, much of a family. I guess I should add that, and what's maybe that? that's part what of does the that reason. Mean? So my mother was p- put in a mental institution or left to go into a mental institution around the time of my bar mitzvah, and she was there through college. Mm. So um, wow, I I mean I used to visit her once or twice a year. So she left, and then my father spent his time either traveling from Westchester County, New York, to the city to work, or visiting my mother. So there really wasn't much family in my family from wow. the time I just alluded to. Do you mind if I ask more questions about your mom? No, absolutely uh, not. So was it a um, was there a traumatic experience in her life, or was there is there a, was there a disease that they could kind of articulate to some extent that she was suffering? So I'll talk about it as a layperson, even though I'm a psychologist. Okay. I, don't, I, don't, I can psychologize it afterwards if, if you like. But sure. One of my good friends many years ago told me that the reason my mother 
left home and was in an institution is because I drove her crazy. Oh. I've never really accepted that explanation. It's pretty harsh. Yeah. I mean, that's <laughs> like, joking, you can joke, but, <laughs> but that's a pretty harsh joke. <laughs> um, well, Elizabeth told those kinds of jokes, but... Um, I guess, you know, I, I guess if, I guess she has the right friend that she can tell that joke yeah, to. You must exactly. be able to accept I didn't it. I take it too seriously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some people um, might not be able to handle that, but apparently you could. So there was originally, there was a, a medical explanation that was given to me when she first kind of took to bed is how I like to say it. Wow. Um, in that she had thyroid problems and that that had caused her to be emotionally out of whack. I think that was a, a the explanation they gave to me and maybe they even believed it partially. Psychology and psychiatry were primitive then. They're still very primitive, but they're not as primitive as they were um, in 1962. Um, but I would say that in the terms that most people who would listen to this show would understand, she was severely depressed. And so it was a non-psychotic, severe depression unipolar depression she didn't have any mania or anything but in the neo-analytic field that was treating her in those days they thought of her as schizophrenic because unlike today they didn't think of schizophrenia as a heritable problem even though all the evidence was there oh, wow. from the twin studies that were done in scandinavia that it was a genetic condition or a predisposition. They saw the schizophrenia as a weak ego. Mm. I guess I've lapsed into psychology. That's here. okay. It's interesting. Um, they thought of schizophrenia as having a weak ego or what Helena Deutsch called an as-if personality, meaning like you actors, like when you're around somebody like this, you can be just like that. Or right, right, when you're right. Around, so you you guys have no real identity. You're just taking on That's the That's right. There's no core the to me. I'm right. just a shell. You're just a shell, right. <laughs> And oh, so that, masks. so you'd be diagnosed as all these <laughs> actors would be diagnosed, not just Montgomery Cliff, but all these actors would be diagnosed as schizophrenic in those days. But they didn't know what they were talking about. So I think for our terms, uh, my mother had a severe depression with kind of narcissistic personality that was non-drug responsive. And wow, it wouldn't yes. probably be even drug responsive with the new generation of antidepressants. So in a nutshell, that was it. And she was rich enough to be kept in a really relatively nice psychiatric hospital till my dad ran out of money and then she got out because she didn't want to go to a state hospital and she got better. You're kidding so me. So much for psychiatry. You're kidding me. No, I'm not kidding you. Did I you, mean, she always was a, how long did, she was always wow. a complainer and would tell us how unhappy she was, but she became a credit manager for JCPenney, despite the fact that she'd never graduated from high school and traveled around the Northeast opening stores for JCPenney. She lived on her own. She had friends. I call that getting better from sitting in a mental institution for eight years. That is an extraordinary turn of events. I, this, I, did, not I did not know where that story was going. Getting better and, and, and becoming like a strong businesswoman right. was not where I thought that was going to go. Uh, she probably didn't either until <laughs> she ran out of money. Wow. So, and did you have siblings? Yeah, I have a sister who died of an accidental overdose when she was 55. I've got a great family. You've got, an, you've got some tragedy in your family. Yeah, so my sister didn't do very well in reaction to my mother's illness and right. my father's kind of absenteeism. And she was a prom queen. I mean, she was a classic prom queen. Most beautiful girl in our high school, went to Ivy League College, dated all of the various captains of all of the sports teams. When she was 19, she married an alcoholic. And except for raising two extraordinary, wonderful children, her life was kind of challenging from then on wow wow um was she was her husband still around at the time of her death he was he recently died actually her but she was remarried okay wow charlie so so i'm wondering where so this is just really fascinating stuff. You can tell so, my family could have used god i well, mean <laughs> i don't know i mean it's a great question right i mean um what do you think you mean by that? I know that's a kind of a half joke, but what do you think you mean by that? I think that there was a, a self-centeredness among probably all of us. So let me include myself, but now exclude myself. In my sister, my father, and my mother, that really, if they had been more focused, not just ideologically, but in reality, in helping other people, in except for my sister, who was really a good parent, but in thinking of themselves as engaged in the world and having an obligation to do good works 
um, which I guess is more of a Catholic term, but 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 to really do good and to be not just focused on their own well-being and nasal ga- navel gazing, I think that they would have been healthier. I don't think any of them had my father maybe later in life, but I think for the most part they didn't have any biological predisposition to be nuts or to be that severely depressed if they had been a little less self-centered. I think people who are spiritual and 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 believe in God probably at least a good chunk of them come out of themselves and feel like they do have a sense of something bigger than themselves and something more important or at least is important than themselves. And so when I said I think my family could have used God, I think what I mean is we could have used a little bit less I and a little bit more other. It's extraordinary. That's really, I think, beautifully said. I mean, I think it's, uh, I think that these are the, you know, damn, I'd say this damn near every show, but hot damn, I love this show. I love (laughs) talking about it with people because it's, um, I think that one of the things I kind of mentioned this to you off off mic earlier, but um, you know, one of the things I talk about a lot is that. So you know, you're you're. Am I right to say that you're a self described atheist, right? I don't think of it all the time, but if somebody said to me, "Are you an atheist?" I would say yes. But what we, but you already betrayed at the beginning of this that you are interested in a more spiritual life, and you're kind of like you have your. I'm in struggle. At, you I have, would describe it as you're in struggle. Yeah. yeah. About that. Yeah. Great. You know. Um, I am too, you know, I'm trying to articulate what that means for me because there's, you've hit on something, right? That's that you're, that you're, uh, not envious of necessarily, but that you admire is that there's an, uh, that, that religion at its best seems to sort of instill a sense of movement towards the greater good. If you're getting the if you're getting the core of what the religion's trying to do, not everybody does, but if you're getting the core of what they're trying to do, it's trying to get you outside yourself. That's what I think, and that's, I think, what Peter Singer and my work at The Life You Can Save does for me. It's not like I said to myself, okay, I've got to be less self-absorbed now that my family, my kids are grown up, and, of course, Diana has an important career, but as a family doctor, but I think that without saying to myself, oh, I need... To do my connection to God, my not going down the rat hole that my mother, father, and sister went down is mean I'm going to need to do something besides make money and try to be a good corporate citizen. How did you handle? So what happened? So the mo- so how old are you when your mother goes into the institution? About thirteen. So right, right. I mean, it was right around her bar mitzvah. It's like almost right. Well, she was very. She wasn't well then. So how do you? So how do you respond? I mean, you're very young. You don't have many tools at your disposal at that age. But then where do you, how do you mentally sort of package this and start just moving? I mean, is that what drives you to psychology? No, I don't think so. I mean, a lot, that's the natural thing to think. Right. I mean, I'm so no, but everybody kind of thinks that I, and maybe I know it's this, it's a boring question. No, No, I'm I'm just kidding. I I mean, it it, it does feel like a natural inclination. At 13, I think the way I package it is I get kind of lazy I'm already sort of that way because my mother's been dysfunctional for a while and the way that manifests itself is I don't work in school I don't bring my books home and I had been a pretty precocious athlete and I stopped playing sports oh. and um, I kind of watch a lot of television eat a lot of bologna sandwiches sort of so get, you're depressed but you don't understand what that means yet. yeah and I I mean I certainly didn't say to myself I'm depressed what I did say is some days I got really sad or I would cry or I would talk to my father or sister or my cousin and you know when's mom coming home I don't know when she's coming home what the f- are yeah, they doing right. there you can cuss that, on this show by yeah way, uh, what want. the fuck are they doing yeah. at that hospital and I would even go down and yell at the psychiatrists and the social workers and tell them that they didn't know what they were doing I was a uh-huh. very presumptuous little eighth grader but turned out i was right Mm. (laughs) um but um so for me i think i just kind of got into a mild depression and but i still did well enough to school in school to go to a decent college i did well enough in uh socially that i had friends but not i didn't really live up to what i would have said is the goals that i would have established for myself you know, when I was 10 or 11 and I was on top of the world and like, you know, the best athlete in my town and wow. and, and people still thought I might be reasonably smart, um, which then sort of 
wasn't the case anymore. Well, you were smart, but you didn't have the. Well, I wasn't. The, nobody you was telling me I was smart. Yeah, that's right. For you, well, sure. you weren't working as hard. Yeah. And so, so anyway, that was to... kind of how I packaged it. And then. Um, and did you meet Diana in high yeah, school? Is that I what did. You, is so that... I was about to say, I think that really Diana has been the sort of that transitional figure. And I think the way where in early on, I think in a very probably what most psychologists would say, an unhealthy way, I was looking for someone to take care of me. And Diana is definitely a caretaker. Not only is she a doctor, but just by inclination is a caretaker. But I think I'm really lucky that the relationship evolved over the years and became a romantic relationship, a passionate relationship, one where we could co-parent, we could grow together intellectually. But I think it started probably in very unhealthy territory without either one of us being clearly aware of it. And we just were, I don't know whether we were lucky or what, but um, yeah, so I think that Diana was the key figure. And then the other thing is I, I started doing really well in school um, and getting a lot of acknowledgement for that. At the collegiate level. At the collegiate level and then in graduate school. And so my self-confidence started building and like, maybe everyone was wrong. Maybe I'm not stupid. Right. I never, and maybe I really can do things. And then when I was first started teaching in California high school, I started playing sports again and oh, I still can do this. And I lost weight. I wasn't eating as many bologna sandwiches, <laughs> more <laughs> avocado and bacon sandwiches. <laughs> yeah, now right. living in California. But um, yeah, so anyway, I, th I think I started to recover for some reasons of building self confidence, relationship with Diana, and. Uh, and, and feeling good about feeling competent, I think. Did you do that mostly? It sounds like you kind of did that mostly on your own with Diana. It, it doesn't. Did, did you stay in deeply, kind of like in touch with your father during that time? You sort of mentioned him as an absentee. No, I, energy. I, I really, he's he not wasn't an, really super emotional guy, or at least emotionally communicative. Yeah, he was. He was just incompetent, mm -hmm. um, but a really nice person, mm -hmm. and he cared, but he wasn't capable of really being very much helping. I think I used friends, and I a couple of times I went into therapy. The problems that I would have emotionally that continued throughout my life tend to express themselves more somatically, mm -hmm. um, and I would deal what, with... Do you mind if you ask oh, No, I mean, means? just like, oh, is my heart okay, or something oh, like I that. I see, I see, I see. Yeah, but... Um, so I became not hypochondriacal in a in a serious way, but but more like I think for purposes of this show, really not good at dealing with the thought of death and the permanence of death and what does that mean? And I'm still in that state. That's what I meant. I'm still yeah. In well, we're we're moving kind yeah, of towards where. To, well, no, I mean you're trying to. Well, I'm trying to address these issues and sort of tie them together. Yeah, I mean, look, you're that's great, and you know you don't have to either if you don't. No, want I'm to, not making know? it up. It's pretty <laughs> important. And I'm, yeah. So, yeah, so I think I recovered, but there's still scars, and maybe those scars would be there if my mother had been great, and, you know, who, we don't really know in the psychology community or the medical community why people have some of the cognitive, behavioral, uh, emotional problems they have. It's, uh, it's really psychology if you in the broadest sense or medical psychology is in its infancy compared mm. to say surgery mm. yeah i mean that makes sense i mean yeah. there's i wouldn't know it from your point of view you obviously are an authority on this because you were in it at in the 60s like you said uh and then how long were you teaching i taught high school for three years and i taught graduate school in psychology for seven years so, so 10 years of teaching post-doc Right, you, uh, you you had a po post master's set ten years of teaching. So oh, I got I a master's in history and education. I taught for three years. Then I got a master's and PhD in psychology, and I taught for seven years. I see, I see, I see. Um, and then that's when you move over to the men's warehouse. Is, af is out after of that. the graduate teaching. And then is that just sort of like a you're tired of the doing the teaching thing? You're not making enough money. Somebody comes and finds you, and you're no, like, wait a second, this I is kind of amazing. We w we were living in Fresno where I was teaching and Diana was teaching in a family practice program and doing clinical work and we had raised um, our son we had moved there when he was one and our daughter was born two years later and um, I, we wanted to get out of the valley um, mm. and oh I'm in California so people understand that. right so, well yeah that'd be exactly I, it's not the same valley but right. you know but not the San Fernando Valley yeah but, yeah, but yeah. out of the Central Valley and when I'm in Washington state now where i live 
people don't understand that as much. But um, we wanted to get out of the Valley, and I hadn't worked to publish the kind of referee journals that my dissertation director had hoped I would. I hadn't really tried. But I don't think that was the old depression sort of leading me to underperform. I just think I didn't really value it that much. I'd rather be with my family and run marathons and do the things that I f- were really making me enjoy myself and feel like a good family member. Um, so we wanted to move to the Bay Area, and I wasn't going to teach at Stanford or Santa Clara. So I was open to running an anxiety and stress disorders clinic like I'd done at part of the school where I was teaching and that's what I was going to do. And that's when George Zimmer asked me if I wanted to join the men's warehouse and start a training program. And I said, well, if you'll pay me $20,000 more than I made last year, yes. And he said, okay. And that was it. And he was like, I'm getting you for a deal. He, I, I don't know what he thought. <laughs> I never know what he thought. Um, well, let's take our last break right here. Okay. And then we'll get back into this more, this question of that that we've circled around a couple of times now, which is where, how are we going to, where are you at with your spirituality today? All right. See you soon. Hello everyone. We're back with Charlie, our last segment. So, the thing that we've referenced a few times, and Charlie has, has clearly has said a few times, is that you're in a place where you want, you want, it's almost like you want to try to define a spirituality for yourself, or you want to, you want to find a more consistent expression of it, or an outlet for it. Can you talk more about what you think you're searching for right now? Um, sometimes I'd like to say if I knew, I wouldn't be asking other people, but... Sure. Um, I would like to become more comfortable with the fact that sometime between tomorrow and 25 years from now, I'm going to be dead. Yeah. And I'm going to leave people I've cared deeply about, mostly Diana and my two children, my granddaughter, my son-in-law, my son's partner, you know, a few critical people, but mostly my immediate family. And it freaks me out in an irrational way, from Diana's point of view, mm. um, that I'm... St- upset about the fact that I'm never going to see them again. Of course, the loss, the dying, that's that's hard for anyone. But I think it freaks me out that I'm never going to see them again. I don't believe in heaven or hell or an afterlife or reincarnation. And so I think that the problem I'm trying to work out, although I don't really spend very much time trying to work it out, it's like I want it to magically fix itself, mm. is dealing with this uh, the illness and death that's inevitable in anybody's life but is more close is closer when you're uh, 70 years old than when you're 30 years old hopefully do you feel like where do you think the answer is like what do you think what do you think it is right now like what does that mean to you like what you wait what are you hoping magically appears i think it won't magically appear i think the answer probably is for me in understanding the thing I mentioned earlier, which is now resurfacing, I think, with this problem in me, like it did in my family, in my sister, my father, and my mother, is that it. I'm not critical to the to even my own family, and that they will go on. And yes, they would be sad, but they will go. They will be fine, and then they will die, and their kids will be fine, and that that's just the nature of things. And I think it lies in losing more of the I and, and immersing myself more in other, not, mm. but not my, just my family, but other being, um, I don't know what the ether, the world. And I think that for me, I can begin to connect with that in when I'm at the sea, when I'm in nature in general, when I'm reading the little bit of Eastern philosophy that I read, Um, I can begin to connect with that. And I think that if I continue to magically think it's going to, if I continue to think it's going to magically appear, then when I get really sick, um, I won't be as prepared. Um, I'll still die, but I won't (laughs) be as prepared as I could be if I put some of the energy that I put into other things into trying to connect when I'm in nature um, or when I'm, or read more um, of the Eastern philosophy that appeals 
to me and makes me feel connected. But if you ask me where I'll find it, I think I'll find it in nature and somewhere in this web of popularized Eastern philosophy. I'm not looking to get into it. Mm. I don't think I need to get into it in the in the original text. I'm not going to learn Sanskrit or. So. One of the things that I feel like was really clear in my family was, I don't remember when I realized this, but I like my parents say I love you to me like every time you leave the. Somebody said to me once like, make sure you always tell somebody that when you say goodbye, tell them you love them because you don't know when you'll see them again. You know, it was like kind of a, a bit of a macabre thought. Yeah. I don't know if they knew they were being macabre, and I don't know if I can even attribute it to my parents. I know it's localized somewhere in my family, but I don't know where. But I know that it's something we sort of it's in our it's in our ritual of communication and our greeting and our goodbye is like so many I love yous, like so many I you know that kind of thing, right? And I wonder sometimes I think a lot about you know, did I say everything, right? It goes down this road. Like, at least you say, I love you, right? And then there's probably some other things you should say to people before you f- lose that opportunity to say them. And and I, you, I've always found to be a very communicative person. You know, do you feel emotionally, I mean, do you think that that's something that you've tied up in that way for yourself? Like, that it's not about you're holding some sort of, I didn't say something, right? Right now, it's, for you, it's something about, it's something about just understanding that you've kind of done everything you wanted to do as far as loving your family in the way and raising them the way you wanted to. And now it's just about kind of meditating on, on the next stage. It's not that you have regrets of some sort, right, about the way you're living at present or the past. Correct. I, I don't feel like in my family or even with my children's partners, um, my granddaughter, different. I haven't been able to tell her mm. how I feel, where she's understood it. She's Hopefully little. I'll live long enough to be able to do that. But yeah. um, no, I don't feel like there's anything left unsaid or any love un- unshown um, at all with any of them. And I'm pretty sure they would say the yeah, same thing. Yeah, that's wonderful. Um, so that's great. I do have a sense that um, now with the work that I'm doing on the, with The Life You Can Save and Peter Singer that I'm that I'm even doing good work. I don't think that I did at the men's warehouse. I mean, I I think I was a decent executive in the sense of being relatively humane within the confines of what the system will allow one to do, given that the shareholders inevitably come first. But, Mm -hmm. um, and I signed on to that when I decided to get the paycheck. So I feel good about the life you can save. I think that it, it is more for me about disconnecting from my own ego and disconnecting from having such a strong sense of I need to control things. Mm. I mean, even as I anticipate just sitting here thinking the event we're having tonight, which is largely a fundraising event, um, Mm -hmm. trying to control the outcome or think that somehow I magically have so much control over it puts unnecessary pressure on me um, and is also unrealistic. So I think that the work for me isn't so much about finding God in a traditional theological sense, but it's about um, finding God in the sense of the the other and connecting to nature and the universe, other people, other non-human animals, um, and giving up this strong need to control and which you can't. You can only control your response to what happens. You can't really control what happens. Yeah, and I'm repeating myself, but but dissolving my own ego more. I've done enough using my ego. I've, I think you know, I recovered from high school. I accomplished things. I have a great family. It's like enough of that. It's sort of like the striving. I think is, I think stopping the striving and the competition and. It's interesting though it because one of the things that I'm important. really one of the things I'm hearing though is that and I know this about you is that you're working very hard for the life you can save. So you're striving quite a bit actually for the life you can save. And so it's interesting that there might be some tension it seems like, right? Like there's some tension between this desire to be the eastern philosophy is a retreating philosophy, right? It's right. A, it's a removal it's pre- in some it's ways. It's pretty quiescent. It's a it's a dissolve it's a dissolution right. of the ego as you're talking about. And yet and yet you're applying so many of your really really advanced executive skills to the life you can save. And so you it seems to me that what 
you might be, what I hear you're saying is, is there's a switch, right? Like some days you're turning it on that you're the executive for the life you can save, which gives you a spiritual wholeness because you're doing good and that makes you feel good. But then there are times where it's almost like you resent that you have to turn on that switch because it keeps you from being removed. I think the, the, I think you're absolutely right. That's very perceptive. I think there's two things about that executive switch or whatever. I think you can, I think I can manage the life you can save with dramatically less ego involved mm. and still do just as good a job. I think the reason the ego comes in, maybe, but what feels right to me is that I always am scared that that old pre-recovery person, the eighth grader eating bologna sandwiches, so to speak, is the person that's like turning off the executive switch, not the... You know the tick not Han turning off the executive. Hold switch. on, hold on. I'm gonna have to catch up to that because there's something good there, but I'm not sure I totally understood. Well, let me explain. Yeah, want, please, yes. please, please continue. So I, I think I get concerned that I'm regressing to that depressed, lazy. So you're not sure if the Eastern philosophy removal is also depression or something. You're like no, oh, I you're, don't, that's you're not worried what I'm that okay, okay, I'm continue. just worried that it isn't the more enlightened Eastern philosophy perspective that's turning off the executive uh -huh. switch. Or, or it's not so much turning it off, but operating the executive switch. Or if the desire to turn it off really comes from this old stuff of just retreat and withdrawal that isn't retreat and withdrawal of my ego, but not retreat and withdrawal from the day-to-day -day activity that's making me whole, which is to work at the life you can save. I think there's a way of doing the life you can save that doesn't involve Charlie Bressler, doesn't involve me holding up a mirror and saying, see how much you've accomplished. I think that there is a place now where I can say, you've accomplished enough. You're doing this because it's useful to do for the world, but you're not, it's not like another trophy. It's oh. not like there's a prize at the end of this. There's, there's really the work. And so the work can be done almost in a, um, kind of like Zen in the art of archery kind of way. Like you do the work, you don't even so much have to look at the results. If you do the work with a pure heart, you know that it will be done well. Um, and you don't have to look and see metaphorically where the arrow goes. It's really beautiful to think about like something that, right, that is something that's clearly um, a success in your story here is that like we all spend so much time just trying to figure out what to do, like which path to choose to get us to a place where we think might make us whole or happy, right? There's like so much, and some people just never even can figure out how to get to a path that will get them there. And you've discovered at this stage of your life now, you, you've discovered two paths. One is, it seems to me, in a sort of simplistic sense, two paths. You have this path that's very clear. It needs to be, that, that, that works in a real direct and totally Reason, rational way, something that I respond to too, which is this this way of of working for the good of the world in a way that makes sense to you, and is a and is a worthwhile mission. And also that you're at a stage that at whatever stage of your life you're at, I I at almost at forty would like to achieve more of an ego dissolution, um, more of a a Zen understanding of the ups and downs of my life and career and what all those things are. You, you have, you're on these paths, you know, you're on the right paths and now you're trying to figure out, can they dovetail together and sort of, can you, can you live in a world where, where the ego isn't attached to you in the life you can save, which you know is right. And you don't want to leave it because you know that that's the answer is not to leave it or turn it off. And the answer is definitely to f continue studying and living more in this wholeness with the world and removal of the ego. But can you live in the world in a way that's directly active and also be removed, right? It seems like, that's can, the, can, can, that's can the you challenge. do it? Because, you know, the oftentimes I think the sort of stereotypical sense of a Buddhist is, and I don't think most Buddhists would, would say this, but is like you're not supposed to even live in the world, right? But then you get people like Thich Nhat Hanh who are anti-war activists and right. are very much in the world. This is who you were referencing. I don't know that name oh, by, okay. by, so by you, name. So that yeah. would be a good one for, for you to look at. But yeah. he's, in, he's somebody who does it. He's actively in the world, very much actively in the world, publishing lots of books, leading lots of um, 
I guess, retreats that are about social justice. He was major figure in the Buddhist anti-war movement in Vietnam, now is in France. But to me, that would be the model of how can you can you be a a relatively ego less driven person who's living in the world. And tonight's a good place for me to start, mm. which is to go there without the sense that I can control all the outcomes without it being a referendum on how good I am, which I think that's where the nerves come in. It's that it's a referendum on how good I am. Sure. Not necessarily on how much money we raise for people at against Malaria Foundation or Fistula Foundation. Everybody likes to believe that's what their motivation is. Right. And and maybe I think that I just need to start down the road even more than I have of trying to do this as not um, an election or or a, a tally on me so much. So I don't think I've escaped the same things that trapped my sister, my father, my mother in terms of the obsession with the self. I think I've done better, fortunately, for lots of reasons than they did. I think there's I still have a long way to go. But but God or whatever you want to call it is is it, not in the traditional theological sense, but I think is having a sense of connection is really the most important element in all of that. Is feeling connected and feeling connected to more than just my immediate family or the one circle from there, which is where my energy has mostly been for most of my life. Mm. That's lovely. I mean, I... I can edit this moment if I want, but I... Because I love... I Sometimes I want it to end right on a beautiful, kind of succinct thought like that feels like you tied something really uh, well together but I, I I have this small question to ask I don't know if there's a lead I don't know how much it'll give us but um, is there a point do you feel like the life you can save is at a point that you like there's a competitor in you right there's a competitor in me there's a competitor in anybody who's out there trying to fight for something but do you feel like it's at a point right now where you truly if in your best most objective place you feel like you've done enough to make to feel good about it. I mean, I know how much you want to do. I know how successful you want this world to be. You started by saying you want it to be a structural, fully structural change. I mean, like that's an endless. That'll take generations. Um, but do you feel like it's at a place where you, if you, do you feel like it's at a place where it really is on you to make the shift to you've done enough, or do you feel like no, there really is actually a little bit more I need to do before I'll feel comfortable to be able to let this go. I feel like there's more I want to do, but I think that if I look at my life in total, the only thing that's really missing in my life from right now is not so much to do more for the life you can save, but to do everything I do in a way that transcends my sense of me in the in the ego-driven sort of way and is connected to the value it brings to other people. And um, I think that's the challenge I face right now. I don't think it's at the life you can save. Mm. I think the life you can save is a great place to work that out. Mm. Yeah. And valuable to work that out because um, it's just, it, it creates value for me to volunteer. I'm not charging them anything to volunteer and help them do what they do. So I think it's, it's a good ground, but I think it, if I'm gonna, if it's gonna be helpful in me enhancing my own spirituality or or whatever we want to call it, I think it's it's gonna have to be done in this way that, as I said, it's 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 being done for other people, and I'm not doing it because I want to be able to hold up a mirror and say, "See what I've accomplished." I think I've accomplished. I think I've accomplished enough except this last challenge. That's great, man. Thanks for chatting. Thanks for having me. I feel like I've had the best therapy session I've had in a long time. You're not the first to say that. Um, You're good I, at it. Uh, thanks, Could man. Could be your next career. Hey, maybe 
well, I'd love to just do it here if you don't mind, you no, know, <laughs> if they can pay you. <laughs> I'll try to figure that out. That's, right. the, that, that's one of my next steps. All I right. still need to make some money, Charlie, before I get to the stage. I'll you're bet at. you do. Um, listen, man, this is really lovely. Um, having people like you come on where you share some of the things you are, especially at where you're at in your life, the kind of perspective and the kind of like uh, reflection you've done on your stages is really cool. It's really inspiring for me. I hope it's inspiring for other people to listen to. And um, we're going to do a lot of hanging out tonight. We'll share a drink tonight and we'll, yeah. we'll laugh uh, a little bit more about getting to go into this. We're going to have a big day together. I'm going to approach. So can we segue into talking about tonight? Sure. Okay. You're going to go after the host. He's going to say something. Oh okay. no, I got to, we got to turn this off if we're actually going to just talk okay, about go ahead. All right. Let's <laughs> okay, turn it. Okay, man. Off. I'll talk to you later. Hey, thank you all for listening. 